Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. This podcast is funded by listeners like you through Patreon. We want to take a moment just to thank all of our donors. We truly would not be able to produce this podcast or maintain the free resources on our website without you. If you're not a donor and you can, please consider supporting us at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists. Even $1 per month helps us. And if you donate at least $5 a month, you'll gain access to exclusive content. And regardless, you'll be helping us keep the science of learning accessible. You all really make a difference and we appreciate you. This episode's featured patron is Peter Murphy. Peter is the CEO and founder of Pocket Prep, a mobile learning platform that offers efficient and affordable study solutions for standardized tests and professional certifications. Peter loves the science of learning because it helps people to find better ways to study and ultimately learn. The interdisciplinary approach of learning science is really changing how we understand effective study strategies. It's pretty cool, he says, because it recognizes that while one size doesn't fit all, there are certain techniques that benefit anyone trying to study. Learning Science has helped Pocket Prep to rethink and evolve how their mobile learning platform functions to better address how people study and actually retain information. For example, the app is designed to support the spaced practice technique of studying. Peter also loves music, and they're looking at ways of incorporating research on music and learning into some of their work. They would love for people to check out pocketprep.com to learn more about their resources. And if you want to try it out, go to the App Store, and they probably have an app for whatever certification you're studying for. We'll also put the link to their website on the show notes. So again, thank you to all of our donors, especially for this episode, Peter Murphy. Now let's get on to the show. Hi, I'm Dr. Megan Samaraki, a professor at Rhode Island College. And I'm Dr. Alfiani Kaminsky, a professor at St. Bonaventure University. And today we are chatting about uh, a listener question, a question that was submitted um, to our email through our website from Leslie. Um, So Leslie says that she really enjoys the podcast. Thanks, Leslie. Uh, But listening has prompted a question for her that she wanted us to discuss. And we thought it was a really interesting question and thought that others might find the discussion interesting. And so we're going to tackle it. So she says, by focusing so heavily on evidence-based strategies, do we risk neglecting important aspects of the whole learning process for which evidence is harder to gather? So she says, for example, I'm a maths teacher and the beneficial effects on learning of differently designed tasks is much harder to gather evidence for than, say, spaced practice, but can have big effects on student concept development and motivation. And so we thought this was a really interesting question and we as a team discussed it a little bit. And so Althea and I today are going to record while we chat. Yeah, we had um, a really interesting time talking about this question and it kind of gets at the heart about why we talk about what we do on the blog and why do we maybe not talk about some other things Um, and we thought it was a really uh, interesting and worthwhile question because it it might seem like because we only talk about certain strategies that that's what we think works and that that's the only thing that works but that's not necessarily the case Um, we talked a lot about why we felt it was important to make sure that we only talked about things that we have a lot of empirical research on, 
um, because that's kind of our whole deal as the learning scientists. We only want to talk about things that there's a lot of science on. Um, but that doesn't mean that those are the only things that work for a few different reasons. Yeah, and I should point out too that the we often discuss things that work. We also discuss things that don't work. But when we're talking about something that doesn't work, it's not because there's no science. It's because there is science. It's just that the science tells us that that's not effective, at least not in the long run. So when we say repeatedly reading or highlighting and then looking over the content that's been highlighted isn't the best strategy, that that doesn't work well, it's because there's a lot of evidence showing this thing does not work well. So it's science all around. Right. And one of the reasons why we feel so strongly that we should be that we should be presenting things that have science to back it up um, is because it's really difficult for us to make judgments about our own learning um, that oftentimes there are strategies or things that we see in the classroom that feel like they're working um, or maybe we have some anecdotal evidence of it. Um, but we really need science or some sort of objective third party to look at it a little bit closer to see if it really is working the way we think it does. Um, so for example, there are a few different things that maybe don't seem to work in the short term, but when we look at the long term, we see that they're really effective. Um, so things like interleaving, spacing, retrieval practice, those are all things that if you just looked at them from one point, from maybe just a short-term point, it would seem like they're not worthwhile strategies and you maybe shouldn't be doing them. Um, and it's not until you look at them over the long term that you get to see the real big benefits of those strategies. Yeah, so take an example, interleaving. There's a study that we've talked about um, on the podcast and we've written about it on the blog. Um, I believe it's Taylor and Rohr 2010. Um, but in that study, what they're doing is they're having students, fourth grades, fourth graders who around uh, age 10, I believe they would be in the U.S. if they're in fourth grade, somewhere in that range. They're learning a bunch of different types of math problems. And they have an interleaving group where the students are mixing up all of these different types of math problems. And then they have a student, a group of students who are blocking. So doing a bunch of one type of problem and then doing all of the next type of problem and so on. And initially, on day one, during learning, the students who are blocking are getting 100%. They're doing really, really well. It looks like they've mastered it, and they feel really confident. Or I don't know if they measured confidence, but I know when you're getting 100%, you're probably feeling pretty good about it. Whereas the students who are interleaving are not doing as well. They're getting more like 80%. They're making mistakes. And so you could infer that they might feel a little bit less confident. At least I know I would feel less confident if I was getting some right, some wrong, as opposed to getting them all right the whole time. And so if you were to stop there, you'd say, okay, well, great. Blocking works really well. The students are doing great. They're mastering it. They're getting lots of good practice in there. The students who are interleaving are making mistakes. And you might make the inference that blocking is better. Or perhaps if you're not doing a study, you might not even have the control. You might just try interleaving and say the students aren't doing well. I'm going to toss this out. But if you wait even just a day and these effects become stronger over time, the students who are blocking do very poorly even the next day. They get about, I think it's 30%, maybe 30 or 40% correct they're not doing great after a little bit of a delay. Whereas the students who were interleaving barely forget anything. It looks like learning from the most mistakes is really helpful. And that goes counter to what 
I think feels intuitive. It seems like better performance means more learning. And yet that's not what works in the long run. And without the science with the comparative control to know how much students tend to forget just in general and without sort of testing this out in the long run, how would we know what to do? Right. So that's a good example of why we need science to kind of maybe confirm or disconfirm some of our intuitions about how we learn. Um, another example would be with just metacognition and our ability to monitor our own learning. Um, sometimes it can feel very much like something's working and it's really effective, um, but until we actually test it in a really sort of objective way, um, it's difficult for us to see that it's not effective. So one of my one of my favorite experiments is um, about the the size of font and how that affects our ability to judge our own memory. I think it's um, roads in either Castell or Castle, roads in Castle. Um, and they had people just read through words that were presented on a screen um, and make some predictions. Do you think you're gonna be able to remember this thing later? Um, and sometimes the words were presented in larger font, like 20 or 24, right? Something that's relatively large on the screen. And sometimes it was presented in smaller font. Um, and now most people don't hold any sort of strong belief about font size affecting memory, but still uh, pretty systematically when people saw words that were in a larger font, they thought they would remember more uh, than the words that were presented in a smaller font. They did another experiment where they told people very explicitly at the beginning, hey, you're going to see words that are in like different sizes. Like you and I both know that that doesn't affect memory, right? And everyone says, oh yeah, obviously that doesn't affect memory. But they still made the same predictions. They still follow the same pattern because the cues that they were using to judge whether or not they would remember this stuff were not based on their actual memory ability. They were based on how easy it was to read the words. So a lot of times the things that we think are effective or that we feel like are effective aren't because we kind of get misled by these different cues. And so it's difficult when we're kind of left to our own devices to know whether or not something's effective. That's not to say that we can't ever know when something's working. Like Megan was saying, it's, I mean, you definitely feel differently if you're getting something right pretty consistently 100% of the time versus if you're getting something right 80% of the time, and that might indicate something. Um, but it does mean that it's challenging to kind of tease apart what's really working here and what's just kind of tricking me into thinking it's working. Yeah, and so we need we need the science. We we need the science to tell us what's really going to work in the long run because we're imperfect at judging our own learning and we're imperfect at judging our our own students' learning. And we do on our blog and on the podcast talk a fair amount about six specific strategies. And the reason we talk about those strategies is because there's the most evidence or at least um, at the point when the IES practice guide came out, which is where we where we found um, these strategies with strong recommendations, these were the ones that had the most evidence to suggest that they were effective. So spacing, retrieval practice, interleaving, dual coding, elaboration, and concrete examples. But these aren't the only strategies that have a lot of evidence. They're just the ones that have evidence going back for retrieval practice over a hundred years, for spacing over a hundred years. The others don't have quite such a long track record, but they've been studied extensively and in a lot of different situations. They've been studied across a lot of different types of people. So we're not just talking about one group of 
university students at a top university in one area of the United States. We're talking about these things being tested across the world. And so we can be more confident in those. And for that reason, we talk about those a lot. But there are other things that seem that seem to work well. So Althea, I seem to remember you doing some research when we were in graduate school about enactment and sort of acting things out. That's not one of the things that we talk about all the time, but there's research on it and we probably should report on it. We just can't say we know for the last century that we have tons and tons of evidence to say this thing works in a bunch of different situations. Right. And that kind of touches on um, another point that we discussed a lot in the group, um, which is that our something that we like love and hate about research and about research on human learning and memory is that it's really complicated. Um that there are so many different factors that can influence whether or not learning occurs that sometimes there might be something that really does work but it's so specialized and so specific and depends on so many different factors that it's really difficult for us to recommend it as sort of the standard practice that we know will work um, as Megan said sort of across different types of people in different parts of the world different types of backgrounds right um, so there might be some things that do work really well in a particular instance, um, but it, it just happens to be the kind of like perfect storm of all these other factors that are coming together to help it. Um, so there's lots of things that we're, that we're all interested in that we follow research on, um, but we, we don't report on them as heavily in the Learning Scientists and in our, in our blog and our podcast because we're still kind of waiting to see, is this something that we can say with a lot of confidence will work for a lot of people? Um, or is this something that's maybe too specialized to be a good recommendation for standard practice? Or is this maybe something that's, that's kind of a fluke that we haven't really teased out why it works in this certain um, set of circumstances? So um, it's, it's kind of difficult to convey all of that nuance and all of these different um, factors when we're reporting on our research and learning scientists. Um, so sometimes we, we kind of end up simplifying it. And so it might seem like we're drawing uh, a sort of hard line in the sand and saying only these things are good and everything else is bad. Um, and that's not necessarily the case. It's just that we feel a responsibility to only put forward and recommend things that we can be fairly confident on based on the research. And we do try our very, very best to report the nuances as, as much as we can. So for example, I know Cindy's written a blog or two about times where retrieval practice didn't work out super well uh, in classroom research that she was doing with with college students and trying to figure out, okay, what is it about this situation? Because of course, we can't give just a prescription. We can't say do X, Y, and Z all the time and it will work all the time and everything will be great. Just like doctors can't say take 400 milligrams of ibuprofen if anything hurts and it will be better no matter what. It doesn't work that way, right? Humans are intricate, our bodies and our minds. Um, and another example that comes to my mind too is I, I did some research in fourth grade classrooms when I was a PhD student at Purdue. And we were we went in and we tried retrieval practice with the fourth graders and it was not great. The students did not learn very much from retrieval. Actually, I, I don't think they learned anything from retrieval practice. The, the control where they were just reading was better in that instance because we weren't really 
tailoring the activity for fourth graders. And so once we adjusted the activity and provided some scaffolding, provided some support to help the students retrieve the information and then sort of backed some of that support away, then we saw benefits of retrieval practice and, and the students were much happier about the entire situation in addition to um, the students learning more compared to that control. But without that research, how would we know it? And I know I've written about that on the blog as well. So we do try to present some of the nuances, but we also don't want to just throw out a whole bunch of, it works here, it works there, it doesn't work here, it doesn't work there, because there, there has to be some some sort of foundation. And so the strategies, spacing and retrieval practice in particular that we talk about really do work in a lot of situations. But as we continue to push the science forward, we do need to ask when does it work best? And in what scenarios do we need to make adjustments so that we can benefit everybody? And we're just we're just not to the finish line yet when it comes to the science of learning. I'm not sure we'll ever be to the finish line. Right. And that's it's really exciting for us as researchers, um, but kind of frustrating um, uh, as teachers and people who want to communicate the research because uh, it's I, I get excited about finding some new thing that maybe affects retrieval practice that we hadn't previously thought about and these complicated interactions, right? Uh, this is something that I find fascinating as a researcher and get really excited about, but it can be frustrating when we're trying to make straightforward recommendations, right? When someone says, hey, just... I, I want to improve learning in my classroom. What do you recommend, right? They're usually looking for just you know, a few simple, straightforward recommendations and not a, a long dissertation length discussion on these subtle nuances of like timing and all these other things that, that might affect it. Um, so it's we, we kind of have to find a balance in what we present and how we talk about it to make sure that we're having um, an open conversation about, like we said, some of the challenges with the research, but also only presenting things that we feel really confident in and that we think are really reliable. Yeah, and to get back to part of that initial question, it was there, um, Leslie said there are certain things that seem to work really well, very specific tasks it sounded like in, in maths that seem to work really well, but we don't have we don't have the data or the data are very difficult to collect. And so, I mean, I would argue as a scientist that we should be collecting the data, even if those data are very, very difficult to collect. But at the same time, we're not at the finish line yet. There are so many open questions. And so as researchers, we're trying to figure out, okay, what's the next question that one makes the most sense for me to try to answer? So I should be trying to do research in my own area of expertise or bringing in collaborators. There's no sense in all of us trying to do research really far outside of our expertise. We just, we, it's best if we all do what we're best at, right? And then also, what are the things that we need the answers to the most that's going to help the most number of people or have the largest impact on any individual student? So t trying to study strategies that can work across the board and are more flexibly applicable are probably going to have larger effects on the greatest number of people, but also larger effects for any individual student than studying smaller tasks. Now, again, that's not to say that study, studying those smaller tasks isn't worthwhile, and we really should be doing that. But there's only so much time in a, in a day where we're learning that the hard way. And so trying to answer every single question, unfortunately, we have to make 
we have to make choices. And it also depends on, um, you know, the populations we have access to. So if there was a school very nearby that wanted to do research on something that is consi- would be considered important, maybe for a smaller number of people, but still really important for that school, it might be very easy for a researcher to partner with that school and, and so on. Yeah, that's um, that's another good point is our sort of uh, our access to different populations and what we can actually feasibly do experiments on. Um, and there are certainly going to be some things that are probably very important for learning that are very, very difficult to study. Um, like Megan was saying, uh, smaller populations, maybe there's a really specific program at a school, right, that, that addresses a really specific need in that, that community. Um, and that might be working well, but it's difficult to have controls in place and to study it. Um, and it just, it takes, it takes time to do these things. So it's difficult for us to know right away whether or not something's effective. So we kind of have to be cautious about what we recommend, um, but also always have our eye out for what we should be looking into more and what we should be kind of paying more attention to. Yeah, and I I mean, this is where bi-directional communication really, really comes in strongly because again, we're researchers, we know our own expertise, we know how to design these experiments with proper controls, we know how to bring something from the basic laboratory through to the classroom so that we're being as efficient as possible and disrupting actual classrooms as little as possible while still making sure that the things that we're presenting as evidence-based practice actually works in a classroom, that it doesn't just work in some weird contrived lab setting. Um, That's our area of expertise, but trying to figure out the best questions, I I know what's going to be really good for the students in my classroom, but those are not the student, that those are not all students. And so talking with teachers and having teachers tell us, hey, this is what I really need to know, or hey, that strategy, it works kind of well in this one situation but it's not quite as flexible as maybe you guys thought here's where I ran into some trouble so that we together are communicating and talking and coming up with the best questions so that we can answer more of these questions uh, together is really important and actually that reminds me um, I am part of a collaborative team uh, a group of individuals Um, I'm not going to try to name any names because I know I'll miss one and then I'll feel horrible. But it's a group of of people, some researchers, mostly teachers across the world actually, who are coming together to try to create a, um, what would you call it? I guess a website or a platform called Unified to try to Um, basically bring teachers and researchers all over the world together so that if a teacher is really interested in a certain type of question and a researcher is really interested, they could find one another on the on the platform. And we have a paper under review at MindBrain Education uh, introducing that platform and talking a little bit about how um, how the project got started and how we came up with the idea. And so hopefully that paper will come out and we can share it on the website and the platform will become available. It's sort of like a like a Craigslist of of researchers and teachers, though I know that term Craigslist is um, very U.S. focused and that those uh, in the U.K. or in Europe might not know what we mean, but basically just sort of a one ad match. Yeah, matchmaking, one ads, so to speak. So hopefully that'll be coming down the pike very soon um, in to, to be a, a real a real thing. Yeah, that sounds that sounds awesome. Um, 
because it's it's really difficult to do research on all of these things because they require I, I, I know that I've had a lot of research questions, but um, because of where I'm located and sort of the access I have to schools, um, it's difficult to test those ideas in classrooms that are not my own. And there's there's a um, sort of risk of it, it's difficult to test your own concepts in your own classroom because I'm obviously very biased <laughs> um, uh, and it, it's. There are, there are a lot of challenges to testing those things in the classroom. So that sounds like a really great matchmaking service between researchers and teachers who want to work together to identify these questions um, and hopefully gather more evidence for these evidence-based strategies. Well, I mean, Althea, humans are biased, right? So, well, yeah. yeah, I mean, we should, we should, we want to try to reduce that bias as much as possible, but we also need to recognize that it's there because no one not even the best researcher is going to be able to completely eliminate bias from all of their research. It's I, that's at least my opinion. It's just not going to happen. Right. And so understanding that is really important. And that's why we need, you know, replication and, you know, different labs doing the same types of experiments to confirm and looking at the same strategies across different populations. Mm-hmm. And, and so just it, it all just comes back to it takes so much time to really be able to say, hey, this thing works pretty well. I mean, retrieval practice, to my knowledge, was first published uh, in, in journals in, ni- I think it's 1909 is yeah. the oldest one that I know of. That's over 100 years ago. And I'm still talking about the fact that we're doing research on this thing, trying to figure out the best way to make it work. It takes so long. Right. Which also means that it's not worth that, that it's not not worthwhile, I guess, um, to look into other things, right? That there's all kinds of different strategies and different approaches in education that are new and exciting. Um, and I'm always uh, very in favor of experimentation and to, to trying stuff out. But it's also good to know sort of the fundamentals. So that way you're doing it in sort of a safe and controlled way. You're making sure you're not really harming learning by trying something new. Um, but it, it doesn't mean that you can't ever try something new, right? Because you don't know with 100% confidence that's going to work. Even with some of these strategies that we talk about, we can't ever know with 100% confidence it's going to work in every single situation with every single person. We think that it'll work in most situations with most people, which is pretty good. Um, but there are all kinds of new and exciting things that I'm that I'm excited to try out in my own classroom and to learn more about as the research around that develops. Yeah, so I mean, the bottom line, Leslie, is you're definitely not wrong. Um, there's a lot of things that we are, are just aren't able to talk as much about yet, and we need we need more data. That's always the solution, in my mind, anyway. That's always the solution: more data, more data. And um, thank you so much for writing in and for asking the question. And we hear from teachers all the time. We get questions. We try to answer them to the best of our ability. This just happened to be one where we knew enough to be able to just sit down and sort of chat about it and go back and forth and record while we did. So, um, you know, we'd love to hear from you. So please do um, send us a message. You can find a contact us, um, what would you call it, a form or a page at the very bottom of our... Yeah, at the very bottom of our homepage. So if you go to www.learningscientists.org and scroll down, you can contact us there. And 
you know, as we see questions where we can actually tackle the answers and, and chat about it, we'll, um, we'll approach them. But we do try to answer um, when, when people have questions, even if it's just to say, unfortunately, we don't know about that particular area or, you know, here's, here are some resources that you can check out or what have you. So we'd, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, we love getting feedback and we love we love hearing that people are, are listening to the podcast and, and reading our blogs. And we really do our best to try to go through and answer those as as timely and as, uh, I guess, efficiently as possible to make sure that um, we've at least looked at it and, and discussed it. Um, the more kind of big questions and complicated ones we usually send out to the group for discussion because sometimes there's something that I don't know offhand, but Megan or Cindy or Carolina might know um, offhand as well. Yeah. Great. So thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time. This episode is funded by listeners like you. To support our work and gain access to exclusive content, visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists.